Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. And uh, that goes for those that are joining us online as well. Glad to have you uh, coming from your homes or wherever it is that you might be coming from. I still remember the very first time I ever saw a mountain, a real mountain. I know some, you know, places call the hills that are in their area mountains, but I'm talking real mountains, like the kind in Colorado. Very first time, I, my family never was much for taking vacations when I was growing up. Colette, as a child, she had been to Colorado more than once, and so she had seen that kind of stuff, but, uh, but I never had. So here I was, 25 years old. Uh, we had twin sons that were right at two years old. We were living in Illinois, and so we headed this direction, made a pit stop in Topeka, and left our boys with Colette's folks. And then we traveled on to Colorado for the first time in my life with a tent in the trunk, and we were going to spend a few days there. And, uh, you know, I had seen movies, I had seen pictures and TV shows and stuff like that with mountains. But, I mean, that's one thing, to see mountains in that kind of a context. It's totally a different context when you're actually there. And I'm sure my eyes were as big as saucers as uh, um, I, was, I was soaking it all in, what I was seeing. And, and I still remember, I don't remember which road I was on, but I still remember going over or around or a combination of both a mountain and uh, coming into an area where there was a pretty steep valley and down off to the left, off of the road that we were driving on, there was a small community, a small town that was kind of nestled in there in this uh, steep valley. And that was the moment I remember experiencing the sensation of envy. You know, and I was just, because the thought had been going through my mind previously because the mountains, the time of year that we were going, they were still snow-capped and all, and, and uh, you know, and I was just thinking, wow, what would, what would it be like out here to get a heavy snow, you know, that we hear about on, on the news that Colorado gets blanketed with, and I was thinking about how, you know, people get snowed in, you know, for sometimes days, sometimes for much longer, weeks, and maybe even longer than that. And so when I rounded that curve or that mountain, and I saw this little community down in a steep valley, I was envious because I knew, man, this place has got to get snowed in, you know, pretty much every year for who knows how many weeks. And I just thought, how cool that would be. You know, the isolation you know, as long as you got plenty of firewood, right? You know, the isolation uh, that, that uh, yeah, I was envious of that. Over the last few years, um, I have seen, <clears throat> it's not a TV show that I regularly watch, but when I've done a little bit of channel surfing, uh, I've seen this show that I think's on National Geographic or Discovery, Life Below Zero. You ever, you ever seen that? You know, and, and I've only seen maybe parts of three or four episodes, but it's up in northern Alaska, northern Canada, uh, I believe, and where temperatures can get to be negative 40 degrees and the wind chill can get beyond negative 100. And not that I'm necessarily a fan of that sort of thing, but uh, some of the people that, that are featured on that show, they're like 500 miles away from the nearest city. And when I've seen little segments of that show, I've felt that feeling of envy. Just, I mean, how cool that would be. There's just something about that that is appealing. Now, some of you, you, you it almost kicks in your gag reflex or you have some kind of a reaction, you know, that that is just, it goes against the grain of everything every fiber of your being. But there are some others of you in here. What I'm describing, you're just like, I hear you, because I felt that as well. Now, I know I'd probably get tired, 
you know, of, of that after, you know, 25 or 30 years. Uh, but, uh, uh, but there's just something about that that, that uh, uh, appeals to me. Uh, just a couple years ago in 2018, Colette and I had an opportunity to do something we had wanted to do for quite a long time. We went to Greece. And uh, when we hit the mainland, uh, we rented a car. And one of the destinations we had in mind was going up to northern Greece into the region of uh, Meteora. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Meteora. Um, and there's some monasteries up there. If you are not familiar with the Meteora monasteries, that is something you'll want to Google later. Not right now. And uh, you, you'll want to look at some of that. But here's, here's a picture, and this is a picture I took of one of them. They're on these rock pillars, and they're just incredibly um, impactful to look at. These communities from hundreds of years ago, monks living in these communities. And there's, there's, I don't know how many of them that are still somewhat active, like eight or nine of them. There were more at one time. But we went to and went on to about three of them and walked in some of the sidewalks. And I mean, they really don't have streets, but, you know, walked on the sidewalks and through some of the buildings. And while I was doing that, that feeling, I was feeling it again. Envy. I know, you know, rounding up some food will be a challenge, you know, living in a setting like that. But, uh, but boy, there's just something about that isolation that can really be appealing. Why? Maybe you ask why in regards to that. And my answer in one sentence is this. Because relationships get complicated. That's my answer. And that's why sometimes the idea of isolation and just kind of being by myself, you know, is something that I think maybe that's one of the reasons I enjoy going on long motorcycle rides, you know, and, and, and all is for that very reason. Because sometimes relationships can be very complicated. And if you've lived much of any years at all, you know that to be the case. You don't need me trying to convince you of that. We're not all wired up the same. Even in our own home, we're not wired up the same. We all have our own perspectives. Besides the fact we are emotional beings, and that in and of itself makes things extra challenging. And on top of that, not a one of us is perfect. None of us are perfect. And that's reflected in the way we talk, in the things we say, and in our actions, the things that we do. Yeah, challenging is a good word for it, to attach. When you're talking about the subject of relationships, they can be challenging. Yet regarding this whole relationship thing, God's word is pretty clear. So let me just kind of sprinkle out there real quickly about five different passages of scripture that will give you a good understanding of what God's intent is for you and for me in regards to relationships. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. So it's not just saying, well, try to live in peace with those that live under the same roof as you or those that live in your little corner of the world. No, it's saying all men, you know, really put some effort into it. Here you have uh, another one, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And we'll kind of come back to that idea of as far as it depends on you, because that is um, a key expression in this that pops up in other forms elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, then we have just a couple chapters later, Romans chapter 14 says, let us therefore make every effort, here we go again, put some effort into it, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, live in peace with each other. Paul kind of piggybacks on that very same concept in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica when he said, live in peace with one another. Okay, so that's just kind of a starter list 
but it gives you a good indication of what God's intent is, you know, for us in regards to relationships. There's a whole lot more of these found in the Bible. And if you like, we can always go back to Proverbs, you know, because we spent a whole lot of time last Sunday uh, talking about relationships and our vocabulary and all this stuff, you know, back in the book of, of Proverbs. Well, here's one of them we touched on. Proverbs chapter 20, uh, verse 3 says, It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. So all of these scriptures, you know, are all communicating the very same idea. It's very possible. In fact, it is likely that in the short time that I've just kind of rattled through a few verses of scripture, that for a number of us in here, we have had certain faces come to our memory, come to mind of individuals that we've kind of had a riff with in one way or another. Well, maybe not faces like that. Maybe they're more like faces like these. That we've had individuals, whether it be co-workers, whether it be people that live under our roof, family members, or whether it be people in our neighborhood where there is tension, there is friction, unsettled squabbles, sharp words exchanged, Flashes of anger, you know, expressed. Yeah. Yeah, like I said earlier, if you've lived any length of time at all, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Well, Jesus gave some very clear instruction as far as this interpersonal conflict, you know, goes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So basically what Jesus is saying is that, and this is found, by the way, within the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is early in Jesus' ministry, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, you know, is where he kind of laid, laid it out. He said, if you want to consider being a follower of mine, here's part of what that's going to involve. And, and historically, we've referred to that as the Sermon on the Mount. Well, part of what he's saying is that if you are in the middle of an expression of worship, and it's at that moment that all of a sudden you recall that you've got some beef going on with someone else and it's unsettled. Basically what Jesus is saying is you need to push the pause button in your worship. And you, go, you need to go make an attempt of reconciliation with this person or these people. And then come back and push the play button and continue in your worship. Before we look at those two verses in more detail, I think what we ought to do, which would be beneficial to do, is to back up and kind of get a little bit of a running start. It won't take much, but to understand the context leading into it. Because anytime you're looking at a verse and the first word in the verse says, therefore, what that means is, based on what was just said, this is what I'm concluding from that. And so we're not going to have the full thought until we back up at least a verse or two or perhaps more to see what it was that he was saying that he's building on. And so we're going to back up two verses, and we're going to look at verses 21 and 22. And this is the way they read. Again, this is Jesus' teaching. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, let's pause that for a moment. He's referencing the Mosaic Law, which the Jewish people had been living or attempting to live in accordance with for centuries of time. Okay, and it, it made it very clear. You are not supposed to murder. Okay, so Jesus is, is saying, all right, this, this is what you have known. You know, lo long ago this was established that you should not murder. Okay. Now, Jesus is going to add on to it. He says, 
But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so what Jesus is referencing here is ang anger. He's talking about being angry. You see that right, right in the middle of the passage of Scripture. There are two different kinds of anger based on uh, the fact that there are two in the New Testament. There are two Greek words that are used to talk about anger. One kind of anger is that kind that flares up quickly, but it dies out pretty much as quickly as what it flared up, kind of like a flash in the pan. It's there, and the next thing you know, you blink twice, and it's gone. That is not the word that is found here. That is not what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about the other kind of anger, and the other kind of anger is the kind of anger that lingers, that a person has a tendency of nursing and brooding over. It's the kind of anger that has staying power in a person's life. That is what Jesus is talking about here. And it's what comes up elsewhere in the New Testament, like in familiar passages like Ephesians 4, where it says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. This is not talking about that flash-in-the-pan kind of anger that's there one second and gone the next. That's not what's being referenced here. This is talking about that second kind of anger, that anger that lingers over an extended period of time. But you notice here, it, it says, don't let the sun go down, you know, which uh, this kind of anger, oh, yeah, the sun does go down when people have it, and it goes down, it rises, and it goes down, and it rises, and it goes down, because the anger just kind of lingers, and it can spread from days to weeks to months, and even longer than that. This is a very, very unhealthy kind of anger. And, and in fact, when we go back to the, the verses, this is the kind of anger that prompts a person to say, Raka, or you fool. Now, those are two of the expressions that are found in the NIV. You look in some other translations of the Bible and perhaps one that you're holding, and instead of saying, you fool, it'll say something like, you moron. There are translations that say that. There are translations that say, you good for nothing. Or another one that says, you idiot. Okay? So, so there are, are multiple different English translations that touch on this, but the thing that we need to be aware of is that these words actually focus on one's tone of voice as much as anything else. It's not specifically, you know, a particular word and a meaning that's attached to the word. It's, it's the tone of voice. These are expressions of contempt. Um, they communicate a mean-spiritedness. You know, that's, that's in a big way what is behind these words. And the whole point is we shouldn't talk that way to someone else who has been made in the image of God, their creator. This is why uh, this verse from last week that we touched on says what it does about this very same kind of anger, this second kind of anger. In James 1, it says, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. It's talking about that lingering kind of anger. Human anger does not produce righteousness, the righteousness God desires. It does not produce the kind of a life that God wants you to live. That's what that's saying. So, uh, so we, need to, we need to steer clear of this. And so he brings that up in verses 21 and 22. And then he says, therefore... Because of that, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're in the middle of an expression of worship, and then and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Push the pause button. Okay, I'm kind of paraphrasing. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so Jesus isn't saying, well, just trash the whole idea of worshiping. He's not saying that. But he's saying, you got some business to attend to. 
here. You know, you got some kind of a rift that's been going on for who knows how long. You need to give some attention to that. You better do whatever you can on your part to settle the unresolved issues that exist between you and this other person or these other people. You may not be able to bring about total reconciliation, you know, to the situation, but you at least can clean up your side of the street. And I think that's what that verse I showed you earlier, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where it says, as far as it depends on you. It takes two to tangle. It takes two to create a real point of contention and, and relationship breakdown. And you can't control the other person. I mean, you have a hard enough time controlling yourself. You can't control the other person. So I think what Jesus is talking about here in this passage is that you do the best you can do to clean up your side of the street. They, they may not respond in like kind. And so reconciliation may not materialize, but at least you've tried. You've given it, you've made effort, you've given it your best effort. Jesus' point is, I believe, that you can't be right with God as long as you are an active participant and at odds with your fellow man whether that be someone here at church, whether that be somebody in your workplace, or whether that be somebody in your own family at home. I mean, spelling it out, I would say it like this. Unresolved conflict interferes with your worship. You may have perfect attendance when it comes to coming to church, and that's saying something, you know, in the setting that, the environment that we live in right now with uh, the coronavirus and, and the lingering effects, you know, of all of that. You may have perfect attendance, though. Every time the church doors are open, you're here. But if you've got some kind of an active conflict going on, it is interfering with your worship. Whether you have recognized that in days past or not, it doesn't change the matter. It interferes with your worship. And why is that? It's because your heart isn't right. Your heart isn't right with God. Several years ago, I was talking about this very passage of Scripture. I was teaching on it, except, uh, I, uh, as I recall, I wasn't using projectors and screens, and I wasn't in a room like this. I was a mile down the road at Broken Arrow School. This was back sometime during the first nine years um, of the start of this church. And, uh, and we very well were using an overhead projector. We were really advanced back in those days with technology. And, and, uh, but we were talking about this particular verse. And uh, the next morning, uh, on Monday morning, I was in the church office, which was in an old farmhouse that sat right back over here on this property. And uh, I got a phone call from a guy in the church. And he was informing me that he had just bought a plane ticket to fly to Colorado to see his dad. And then he went on to explain. And this was a guy that was married and had a couple of kids. And, but he, he said, my dad was always hard on me. I mean, he was on top of me about every single thing that I ever did wrong. I mean, he never missed a sporting event, a game. But afterwards, he drilled me about the things I did wrong. And, and that was the kind of relationship that I had. That's the way my dad was about everything. And I could not wait to get away from him. And so when I went to college and played some sports in college, uh, as soon as that was over, I made a vow I was not going to go back there. And I was not going to see him. Now, what made it complicated was he had a good relationship with his mom. So he would spend considerable time, you know, when he, when he could, on the phone talking to her. But he had no interest in seeing his dad. And year after year after year rolled by. He got married. He had a couple of kids. And so here he was, you know, hearing this portion of Jesus' teaching. And he was convicted. And he told me on the phone that he had a hard time sleeping that night because he knew that that was speaking directly at him. And so when he got up in the morning, one of the first things that he did is he bought a plane ticket. And, uh, um, and scheduled some off time from work so that he could go 
and talk to his dad. And he was calling me just to let me know and saying, I need you to be praying because this is going to be difficult because a lot of years have passed and I have no clue how my dad is going to react to this. Well, you see, that's, that's along the lines of why Jesus was saying this, is that it's relevant for a number of us because a number of us, we are at odds with somebody and I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying whose fault it was, who started it to begin with. That actually isn't totally relevant in this discussion. If you were at odds with someone and your relationship has really broken down and there's, there's these bad vibes going on, this ill will that exists between you and the other person, you at least on your end of things need to make an attempt of restoring that. You don't have control as to how they're going to react. And so the recommendation was you don't go into it with really high expectations that your attitude is going to immediately be reflected from them because there's a decent chance it's not going to be. And then you're going to create a whole new situation here when you respond you know, harshly to their lack of reaction that you're looking for. So you don't go into it with real high expectations. You just go into it knowing full well what you need to do and what you need to say. You see, it's not just an issue that this broken relationship eats away at you and that it makes it hard for you to sleep sometimes that it makes you miserable to a certain degree. It's not just an issue about all that. It's an issue of the fact that it creates an obstacle in your relationship with God. That really is bottom line, what's going on here. And that's why the very next verse, if you got your Bible open, you'll see it in the beginning of verse 25. It says, settle matters quickly. That's the, very, the way the very next verse begins. You see, this kind of anger is something that's been lingering for far too long in this broken relationship. You don't want it to linger anymore. You need to get on top of it. Settle matters quickly. Or like that Ephesians 4 passage, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And that's basically saying the same thing. Settle matters quickly. Okay. So how do we go about doing this? Because all of us, sooner or later, will find ourselves in a sticky situation with someone else. It might be a coworker. It might be your spouse. You can't let anger rule the day. There are healthier ways to, to work through, you know, the lack of relationship, the broken relationship. Kind of reminds me of Reminds me of a guy who confided in his pastor. He went to his pastor and he said, he said, my wife and I, we have fought nearly every day now for at least 10 years. Every day we fought. And so the pastor responded by saying, well, did you fight today? And the guy said, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we had a doozy. We fought today. And the pastor said, well, how did it end up? And the guy said, well, she came crawling to me on her hands and her knees. And the pastor said, well, was she saying anything? He goes, yeah. She was saying, come out from under that bed, you coward, and fight like a man. <laughs> you know, we laugh because this is the sort of thing that we don't always know what to do with. And so let's make jokes about it, right? But the reality of the matter is, deep down inside, we know that relational conflict isn't really that much of a laughing matter. We don't want that kind of stuff in our work environments. We don't want this kind of stuff in our homes. We don't want this kind of stuff in our hearts. And that's why we can't just leave all of this to our impulses and just do whatever comes natural because... That's what got us into the mess that we're in already, allowing our impulses to dictate our actions and our words and the like. All right, so what should we do? 
Number one, I've got five suggestions here. Number one, take the initiative. There is no other way to read the passage in Matthew chapter 5 without understanding that Jesus expects for us to take the initiative. You know, it's not one of those things where we wait until the other person deserves it. I mean, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that is pretty common. It's for people, you know, that got some kind of a, a issue going on with someone else. Well, as soon as they show, show some signs of deserving it, then I'm going to go to them and try to make peace with them, blah, 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 blah. No, no. We don't wait for them to be deserving before we take a step. We initiate things. We don't wait for the other person to approach us first. You know, for some of us, the way we're wired, you know, especially if we, in our mind, are thinking, well, they started it. So since they started it, they need to start the reconciliation. And it makes perfect sense in our mind, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching that, that we, as believers, as followers of Christ, we are the ones who are to start the reconciliation. We are to start by taking initiative. Number two, we need to bathe this whole situation in prayer. And that includes praying for yourself and praying for them. We pray for ourselves, especially in regards to God giving us discernment in regards to how we approach the other person. What is going to be the best way? Now, the best way isn't to get two or three of your buddies and all three of you to go to the person that you're at odds with. That, more times than not, is not uh, um, a very healthy approach to things because they're immediately going to feel like they're being ganged up on. You know, so more times than not, it's going to involve one-on-one, -on -one, you know, and there might be some exceptions for certain reasons, you know, for that. But, but you're asking God to give you discernment in regards to the way you approach them and that God will soften your heart. You may not realize it, but if this anger has been residing within you for an extended period of time, your heart is not soft. And so this is something you need to be praying about. You, know, you may not realize that your, your heart is kind of hardened in all of this, but it has. If, if this has been an extended lengthy thing that's been going on. So you need to be praying that God's going to soften your heart in all of this. But you also need to be praying for them. And there are multiple scriptures that talk about how we need to be praying for people that represent our opponents. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 44. In the very same chapter of the main passage we're talking about today, Jesus goes on to say this, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. So we need to pray for them, not praying that God will open their eyes by striking them with lightning. You know, that's not the prayer. You know, that's not the spirit of the prayer here that I think Jesus is referencing here. Um, this isn't a natural thing to do, to pray for their welfare, to pray for their well-being. That's not natural. What is natural is to give them a taste of their own medicine. They've said something sharp and they've hurt you. They've embarrassed you in front of others. Well, now you need to embarrass them in front of others. That is what comes more natural. But, uh, but you, need to, you need to pray for them, even though it is unnatural to do that. And, and one of the things I'll say along these lines, and we'll touch on this a little bit more next Sunday, uh, when the thought of them pop into your mind, and usually it creates some negative thoughts, things going on in your head. But when the thought of them pops into your mind, immediately turn that into a prayer. Just ask God to, to use his spirit to remind you that whether you're laying in your bed at 1.30 in the morning or whether you're at work and you just got done with a client on the phone, you hang the phone up and something triggers the thought of, this person that you've got a rift going on with, you know, ask God's spirit to use those moments to prompt a prayer within you, a prayer for their benefit, for their welfare. One of the quickest ways to change an attitude um, 
directed toward a person is to pray for their welfare and to do that consistently. And uh, the more you do that, not like I said, we'll talk a little more about that next week. Um, it will end up having a, um, a positive impact within your life, within your mind and your heart. Number three, choose your words carefully. I don't really need to go into great detail in this because that was a big part of what we talked about last Sunday. We talked about our words and how painful our words can be or how positive our words can be. This, I'll just show you, remind you one verse that we touched on last Sunday. Proverbs chapter 12 says, careless words stab like a sword. In other words, they can really hurt. They can do some significant damage. Our words can. But in contrast to that, it says, but the words of the wise people bring healing. And so, yeah, our words can do a lot of damage if we're being careless. But if we're being careful and selective in the words that we use, they can accomplish a lot of good. And so that's why I'm saying we need to be careful with our words. We need to process our words. Instead of just allowing a word to pop into your mind and immediately, almost simultaneously, appear on the tip of your tongue and it's being spoken, that's dangerous. We need to process it. That's why the Bible says we need to be slow to speak. You know, And it's implying that idea that we're processing our thoughts. And I might add to this, and this is something that I didn't talk about last Sunday, but it certainly um, deserves our attention. The tone of our voice matters. You know this is the case. Even within your own home, within your own marriage, with your kids, the tone of voice matters. I mean, you can say the very, you could come up with a sentence and you could say it in one tone of voice, that's a real positive one, and then turn right around and say it in a harsh, strong tone, tone of voice. And even though the words are identical, it communicates something very different. You know, you, you, you know how that works. If you walk into a situation and you're um, all geared up defensively for a confrontation, so you come into it and your tone of voice is reflecting that and you're in a defensive posture and your guns, I mean, you know, based on body language and stuff like that, your guns are loaded and you've got an angry expression on your face, even by the time the first word comes out of your mouth, you know, if your body language and your tone and all of this, you know, is communicating that, then the vast majority of the time you're in for a fight because they're going to read all of that and maybe even look past whatever words you're saying because what is really communicating to them is your body language and your tone of voice. And so you need to give attention to that kind of stuff as well. One of the Proverbs says a gentle answer turns away wrath. You know, and that's, that's what that verse is talking about is our tone of voice. So, so choose our words carefully. Choose how we speak carefully. Number four, confess your part of the conflict. This very well could be the hardest step of all because there is an ugly thing inside of us that rears its ugly head and gets in the way, prevents this from happening. What is that? It's called pride. Pride definitely will derail all of this. This is the step, though, that will break the gridlock and get the relationship moving again. But if you, if you just cannot in any way, shape, or form, get yourself to sincerely say, I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me, you know, to say something along those lines, then you realistically don't have a great deal of hope for the future of the relationship. You need to own up to your side of things. Again, you know, they may have started it, they may have been harsher than what you were, but it takes two to tangle. And so you're going to clean up your side of the street. You don't have control of what they're going to do, but you're going to give it your best effort. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9 says, Fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. And then we have number five. And this may be something none of you have thought about before. Make restitution if possible. You may not be familiar with, um, with this term, but it is something that is found in the Bible. 
In fact, there's a couple of places where there are four or five verses uh, at a time devoted to explaining this. One of those places is Numbers chapter 5. The other one, uh, which is somewhat similar to that, is found over in Leviticus chapter 6. But here's the way it reads in Numbers chapter 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they have done, adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person that was wrong. Okay, so depending on the nature of what it is that you have done, possibly to wrong someone. Let's use a, an easy illustration here. Let's say you took $100 that wasn't yours. $100 of someone else. But then at a later time, you felt bad about that and you wanted to make it right. Based on a passage like this, what you are to do is not just return the $100, but you are to give an additional $20. So you're given $120. It's part of an expression of repentance that's coming from you. Now, a person can argue, and I totally understand the argument, that, well, this is Old Testament. This is based on the law, the law of Moses, and we don't live under the law. And I'd be totally in agreement with all of that. However, the thing is, you do see restitution found in the New Testament as well. And you see it in the example of Zacchaeus. This is one of the places in the New Testament. Luke chapter 19, you remember Zacchaeus. He was the short guy that couldn't see Jesus because of a crowd, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree. And do you remember what Jesus did then when Jesus spotted him up there? He, Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. So here Jesus and all of his disciples go to Zacchaeus' house, which that in and of itself got some criticism from the religious leaders because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So the average Jewish person hated people like Zacchaeus because he basically sold his soul out and he was working for the Roman government. But Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. And, of course, while he's there, he's doing some teaching and all. And there comes a point in time that Zacchaeus apparently is convicted by what it is that he's hearing Jesus um, speak and teach. And so Zacchaeus stands up and he has something to declare, not just to Jesus, not just to Jesus and Jesus' disciples, but to all of his guests as well, which were a bunch of riffraff, tax collectors and sinners and all based on the Pharisees' definition of what a sinner looked like. And, and so Zacchaeus says that here and now I give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I have wronged anyone, which people probably snickered when he said, if I have wronged anyone, because they're all thinking, well, of course you have. How, how are you so wealthy? You've wronged people. We all do that. Well, he says, if I've wronged anyone, I will pay back four times what I've wronged them. So in the earlier example I gave, if he basically saying, if I took $100 from someone, I'm going to give $400 back to them. And the point of the matter is, is that all of that is an expression of, of repentance. It's a form of restitution. It's, it's a clear demonstration that there was something going on in his heart. Now, some wrongs that you and I have been engaged in in days gone by, you can't make restitution for those. You can't right those wrongs just based on the very nature of what it is that you or I did in the past. But on the other hand, there are some of the wrongs that we've done in the past that we do have the wherewithal to um, put into practice this restitution. I really started grasping all of this when I was about 20 years old. So I had been a, a believer, follower of Christ for about three years at that time. I was at college and, uh, you know, based on some of the scriptures I've shown and the example of Zacchaeus and all, I was really convicted by this. And, and I was convicted because I knew guilty as charged, you know, and I knew that there, there was a way I could right some of these wrongs. And so the next time that I went home, I went to uh, the gas station, the owner of the gas station, 
uh, that I had worked at part of the time when I was a teenager. And I went up to the owner, I pulled him aside from a couple other folks that he was with at the moment, and I started explaining to him, and this is a guy that was, you know, here I am, 20, and this guy was, was uh, I'm thinking of the age of his kids, uh, this guy was in his, probably his mid-60s, or early 60s at that point in time. And so I'm, I'm talking to him, and, and, uh, and I'm explaining that while I worked for him, I was stealing some money and I was doing some of that stuff that you hear happening in the way that we did it at the gas station as we were a full service gas station and so like someone came in and had a low tire needed a tire fix and you know I'd take it all off and put a patch in it and you know we didn't plug tires back then we fixed them you know the good way and and uh, um, but I never wrote up a bill of service you know and I'd tell them what the fee was and I took the money and that money never saw the cash register. It was that sort of thing that had been going on. And, and so I explained this to Cecil, and I apologized. And I explained that, you know, since those days, you know, I had become a Christian, and, and God has really brought some conviction. And so I reached into my pocket, and I had a folded check, and I handed it to him. And, and I said, uh, you know, I'd never kept track, never kept track of how much I took from you. And so I honestly do not know if this will cover that. But, but I wanted you to know that I was wrong, and I apologize, and I want you to have this. And, and so we talked some, some more the whole time. He was holding that folded check, and by the time we were done talking, he was the last one to be talking. He stepped forward, and he stuck it back in my shirt pocket. He had never opened it, never looked at it. And he said, Brad, I, I got all the payback I need just hearing what it is that you've shared with me. Now, he wasn't a Christian, you know, and uh, so I had no clue where that might lead things for him down the road, you know, hearing this. But he respected what it was I was doing and said, I don't need this money. And uh, um, that's an example of restitution. That was extremely difficult for me to do, very difficult. You know, because by that point in time, I was married, and Colette knows that I explained it all to her, and she knows how hard that, as I saw that weekend approaching, that we were going to come home for the weekend, how difficult that was. Now, is that the only example of restitution I've um, engaged in? No, but it's the only one you're going to hear me talk about <laughs> up here, okay? So, so uh, but I do believe that this is a concept. That is found in the Bible. I, I'm not saying that this is something that you and I need to engage in because Moses received the instructions. No, we don't live under the law. But there was a reason it was there. There was a dynamic that has value to our lives today. And so, so that's why I included on this, this uh, if you want to call it a five-step list, as far as um, making peace with people that you're at odds, you're at odds with. Right now, you might be thinking of a person that God has put on your heart. You might be thinking of an individual just real recently, just this week, that you've kind of had it out with, and it was so it was so blurry in your mind. You don't even know who started it, and, but you just know it wasn't pleasant. It was ugly. Or maybe you're thinking about somebody from quite a long time ago. Maybe it was a son or a daughter. Or maybe it was a parent, you know, and, and you've been at odds with them and some harsh things have said. And it would be really hard to go back to them, to talk to them. Someone once said that um, doing what's right, I got that quote wrong. Doing, whoever said doing what's right is going to be easy. Yeah, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Sometimes doing what's right is going to be hard, but it has value. You got to at least try. For the sake of your relationship with the Lord, in order for it to continue moving forward and getting deeper and more meaningful, you got to at least try, you know, to make right the wrongs to improve 
the relationships that for whatever reason, at some point in time, have gotten derailed in your life. And you don't want to wait for the other person to deserve it. And that is leading us into our time of communion. I want you to think about this. Did God wait for us to deserve it before he did what he did for us? Before he sent his son Jesus into this world to die the kind of death that he died on the cross? Did he wait for us to deserve it? Did he wait for us to take the initiative? No, he didn't. And yet he did what he did. And that's why we have the hope that we have, the hope of eternity, being able to be in, in a relationship with the Lord, with our sins being removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's what scripture says. That's how complete God's forgiveness is. We're whiter than snow. And all of that came about not because we deserved it. And so might we be inspired by the example that God has set for us and kind of shed some of that, share some of that grace with the people in our lives. Let's pray. Father, today as we spend the next couple of moments reflecting on your sacrifice, your gift of love, the sending of your son, his death on the cross, while we take the bread and we eat it and the cup and we drink it, we're reminded of the fact that you took the initiative and you made it possible for our relationships to be restored to you. And it had nothing to do with whether or not we were deserving because the reality is we were not deserving. But you did it anyway. Father, I pray that you would use some of that to inspire us in our relationships with others, including the ones that have been struggling for some time. Help us to do what's right. It's in Christ's name I pray.